I didn't say you could sit down. I'm just kidding. Our scripture this evening is 1 Corinthians 11. can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,784. And um, I'm actually going to read uh, verses 17 through 34. I know that's a lengthy reading, but uh, that's to give us context for the discussion of the Lord's Supper. Give a little context for the reading. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a church with a lot of issues, and one of them is an abuse of the Lord's Supper, um, taking it in a in a, a wrong way, taking it in a, an old, unholy kind of um, improper way, and largely it had to do with a, a disrespect or an um, an inconsiderate view of others. Am I making sure another has enough rather than indulging myself? So on and so forth. So Paul takes that to task. And this is what he says. Here now the reading of God's holy word. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment." When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless to the hearts, minds, and hands of his people. And along with our uh, scripture text this evening... We're going to be looking at uh, Lord's Days 28 through 30. That is the entire uh, section of the Catechism on the Lord's Supper. And so, yes, we're going to have to blast through this, so uh, um, stay with me. And because of the length of, of the, the reading in the Catechism, uh, I'll read the, both the questions and the answers uh, solo today. So, Lord's Day 28 uh, is in the back of your Psalter hymnals on page 36 if you would like to read along. 
How does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and by believing to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat the broken bread and drink the cup? And the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing which we bless, is, not a participa- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Are the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No, just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply God's sign and assurance, so too the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the actual body of Christ, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? Paul uses the words of participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that our sins have been completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself finished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his very body is now in heaven and at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. 
Who are to come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they say and do that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's anger upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. I know that's a lot, okay? But I'm going to try to simplify it for us so that we're not overwhelmed by all the words that were just spoken. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, first thing we need to know is that this is the section after the part of the, uh, the Apostles' Creed. A couple of Sundays ago, we talked about the sacraments and the language of sacraments, signs and seals. And typically after that, you go into baptism. Baptism is the next Lord's Day. Um, but as I sat preparing this week, I thought to myself, we're taking the Lord's Supper this Sunday, and I'm going to preach on baptism. And then we're having a baptism next Sunday, and I'm going to preach on the Lord's Supper. And I didn't think that really fit with the circumstances of our church, and so I uh, switched them for our sake so that we could have a little bit better, clearer view, just having partaken of the Lord's Supper, uh, what the Lord's Supper actually is. Uh, and so that's why we're doing this. Um, let's get into it then. Our theme is this, the Lord's Supper nourishes and assures let me make sure yep, those who have faith we could even say true faith since that's a very important uh, word usage in the catechism by reminding them of the perfect sacrifice of Christ or we could say work of Christ. The Lord's Supper nourishes and assures those who have faith by reminding them of the perfect work of Christ. And I know that I just read a lot from the Catechism, and, and I read the largest section in, uh, in the Bible about the Lord's Supper, how we're supposed to do it, and that's a lot of words, but I told you I would try to, uh, I would try to simplify it for us, and I think this is how we're going to do it, okay? Um, what it is, Lord's Day 28 presents to us the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. What it isn't. What it isn't, Lord's Day, Lord's Days 29 and what I'm calling 30A, question about the Mass. Um, tell us what it isn't. Why do we believe this and not this? Okay, that's the comparison that's going on in the catechism. And then the last thing is, who can take it? Or who can partake? 
is another, another way you could say that. And Lord's Day 30b tells us about that. Who can come to the Lord's Supper? Who can come to the Lord's table? So all of that stuff that you just heard, all the reading, that's really, this is really what the catechism is teaching us. What it is, what it isn't, who can take it, okay? And so that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to get right into it because I know we're covering a lot. So what it is, what is the Lord's Supper? Question 75 says, how does the Lord's Supper remind you? So the first thing I want to put here is a reminder. Um, Sometimes a, a particular view of the Lord's Supper is called a memorial view, right? Do this in remembrance of me. Lord's Supper, remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice. So there's also an assurance aspect. Remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts. The first thing I want us to see is the particular wording of the question, how does the Lord's Supper remind you and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? Earlier in the catechism, we were told that justification by faith means that we share in Christ's one sacrifice and in all his benefits. And so there's a very um, important emphasis in the catechism that shows us that what we receive in baptism and the Lord's Supper and the sacraments is nothing different than what we receive uh, when we believe. It's, it's salvation. It's grace. Uh, we just simply receive it in a different way. These are visible, uh, visible signs and seals. Um, and then what we have in faith is, is not so. So that's, uh, that's important. Uh, Here's the answer. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and drink this cup. So, in the supper, we have a reminder and we have an assurance. But we need to understand that the supper is also a command. That this is not something to be taken lightly. This uh, This is something that the Lord has commanded us to do. That's why we hear the heaviness or the weightiness and the way in which Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. He wants them to know that this is something that's very important, that the Lord himself instituted this, and that we should not take it lightly. And the frivolousness by which they are treating the Lord's Supper, the way they are, uh, uh, the rich people are eating and the poor people are going hungry, the way that people are coming drunk to these love feasts, it's inappropriate to the command, the weightiness by which the Lord instituted this. These are things that we should consider. These are things that we should take, not take lightly. And uh, typically, in many uh, churches, you will find a very um, light view of, of the Lord's Supper. Um, maybe I'll have a chance to share a little bit more about that later, but moving on. Um, with this command, he gave a promise. So there's a promise. And the promise falls under two categories. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. You can say the first one is visible, 
I see with my eyes, right? And then second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Uh, the next one would be like touch and taste, right? Surely as I receive uh, and uh, taste. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. It is a gift of God, a means of grace by which not only do we have in word pictures or from the testimony of Scripture and the proclamation of the pastor's voice, the truth that Jesus Christ died for you and that his sacrifice covers all of your sins and continues even to cover your weakness. But God in his grace gives us something we can see with our eyes, that we can touch with our hands and taste. It's profound. It shows us how good and gracious our Father is. But I want to take a closer look at these promises because they do something unique. It says, first, as surely as I see with my eyes and the bread of the Lord and the cup given to me, that his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me. So these promises point back to the past. To the event in history that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That we are to look back at that and we are to say, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said, it is finished, that he meant it. That he truly meant it. But it does more than that. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves taste with my mouth, the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, he nourishes and refreshes my soul. That's a present reality. That is the now, the here and now. I need nourishment and refreshment for my soul today. I came and I took, partook of the Lord's Supper this morning because I know that in the weakness of my flesh, Father, if you do not continue to give me your grace and extend to me your grace, I don't know what will become of me. I lean upon the promise, Father, that the work that you began in me, you will see into completion. Not only that, but I partake of the bread and the cup because I believe that Christ, through his spirit, continues to nourish and refresh me and my soul for eternal life. So there's a future reality to this as well, right? We partake of the Lord's Supper in a fashion that not only looks back to the, the act of Christ upon the cross in the past, that not only refreshes and nourishes us in the present now, but is also looking forward to the future of the wedding supper of the Lamb, knowing that one day, knowing that one day we will have a feast with our Lord and we will praise his name forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you think of the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is an eschatological or an end reality to the Lord's Supper as well. Past, present, and future are all given to us in this reminder, in this assurance, and in this command. Uh, so, but it's more than that, right? 
Let's look at question 76. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart. It's important, and it will be uh, important as we continue our discussion about who can come to the Lord's table. The entire suffering and death of Christ and by believing to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Remember, I told you that the catechism wants us to see that what the Lord's Supper is doing for us is doing for us because we've been justified by faith alone. That those who have a true faith, those who have a believing heart, who will believe in the entire suffering and death of Christ, and because they believe, they've received forgiveness of sins and eternal life. They don't receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life because they partake of the Lord's Supper. They partake of the Lord's Supper because they've received forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. It means more. And I think this is where the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper really um, gives impassions me and helps me to see that I think the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper is the biblical view of the Lord's Supper. Let me just take a moment and do a bit of a history lesson so back in the time of the Reformation, there was only the Catholic Church, and there was only the Mass. There was no other views on what the Lord's Supper meant. And the Mass was used kind of what I would say as population control and parishioner uh, uh, slavery. If you want to continue to have the, your sins forgiven, you have to continue to come to Mass, and you have to continue to eat of the bread of the Lord and the cup. And that's how they kind of kept... The, the people, the common people, you could say, on the treadmill. But when the Reformation happened, we had a splitting of different views on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. One of them was Zwingli. He's a Swiss reformer. And he has what is often characterized as a memorial view, strictly a memorial, like just in remembrance, nothing more. I would say it's probably a little bit more than that. But we could say it's a, it's a memorial view uh, for our sake tonight. Um, and he believed it was simply just to, to remember what Christ had done for us. And then you had, um, you had Luther. And Luther was probably the closest to the Roman Catholic view. And his view came to be understood as uh, consubstantiation. And the idea of consubstantiation is that the bread and the wine remain bread and wine, but the presence, the bodily presence of the Lord is around, under, and over uh, the elements, okay? And I know that's kind of all kinds of philosophical, but the idea is it's, it's, it's close to the Catholic view of, con, uh, of transubstantiation, that, that the, the blood or the, the cup and the bread actually become the body of Christ, although they present still as uh, bread and wine. But this is what Calvin did. Calvin took, I think, the best of Luther, Luther's view of taking serious the words of Jesus who said, this is my body and this is my blood, and the best of, of Zwingli's view, and he said, you know what? Uh, there's not a bodily presence, a physical presence of Christ, but there is a, a spiritual presence of Christ. And Calvin said, because the Holy Spirit which indwells believers is the same Holy Spirit that continues to indwell Christ, and because we have a spiritual union with Christ, that means that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is as if we are being lifted up into the heavens, into the heavenly throne room where Christ is seated at the right hand, and we are eating before him. 
And he says, therefore, by faith, we truly partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. By faith and by our spiritual union, there's more. This mysterious occurrence of the Lord's Supper, it's it's amazing. It's wonderful. And I hope that when you were taking the Lord's Supper this morning, you were thinking about that reality. And simply being amazed by what God has done for you. I hope that you were thinking, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Listen to what the catechism says. It means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although He is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one Spirit as members of our body are by one soul. The emphasis in 1 Corinthians 11 is is about the disunity between believers in the church and how they can mistreat one another and the way that they are partaking of the Lord's Supper. And even that, that famous passage, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul could very well be speaking of, and there's a very strong argument that he's speaking of, the congregation, the body of Christ, us. But the spiritual union that we have with Christ's physical body that is in heaven means there really is no difference. That if you mistreat a brother or sister in Christ, you are mistreating Christ. In such a way that when Paul was thrown to the ground on the road to Damascus, Christ Our wonderful Savior could say, Paul, Paul, or Saul at that point, right? Why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Except with a believing heart. To eat means to believe. To believe means to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I love the words here in the catechism that we are united more and more. This is communion. I would hope that when we partake of the Lord's Supper that the the brotherly and sisterly communion bond that we have would grow and grow and grow. The fellowship that we would have would continue to, to develop and continue to be blessing to us. That's what the Lord's Supper is, okay? And I'm already looking at the time, and I'm already saying we need to move along. Let's look at what it isn't. I saved a little bit of time there. Lord's Day 29 says, where, okay, sorry, I skipped over question 77, but you know what, that's just a repetition of the scripture that we read. So Lord's Day 29, question 78 says, Are the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. 
This is a polemical response to the mass. This is a polemical response to Rome at the time. We think nothing of it when we hear the answer no. But at that time, the answer no to this question meant you were going to be persecuted and possibly martyred. And many were. No, the bread and wine do not change into the real body and blood of Christ. That's the, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Um, and then they, the catechism writer draws a comparison between uh, baptism. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply God's sign and assurance, so too the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the actual body of Christ, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. So it's going back to, uh, to our discussion of sign and seal. Um, sign and seal is what the way we are meant to, the way the Bible instructs us to understand the sacraments, okay? So when, I, uh, when a baptism occurs, we are not actually pouring the blood of Jesus Christ upon uh, that child or upon that adult, and, uh, but it's water. But what it represents, the sign, is the washing away of sins, right? And when God pours his spirit out upon that person, where the real washing away of sin is, the washing of regeneration, we're going to talk about this, next Sunday night, then that baptism becomes a seal, an assurance to that person that God has chose them and that God has washed away their sins with the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. In the same way, the, the, the Lord's Supper functions, okay? The Lord's Supper functions in the same way. The bread and wine are changed. No. Uh, the bread and wine are not the crucified body and blood of Jesus Christ. They point to the crucified body and blood of Jesus Christ. When we eat and drink, we're not actually participating in the suffering and death of Christ, but as if we are participating in the suffering and death of Christ. We're being pointed to it. When we eat and drink by faith, we are reminded that we are one with Christ. We are participating in the oneness of the body, and as surely as bread and wine nourishes our bodies, so Christ, by his Spirit, continues to nourish our spirits to eternal life. This is the language of, of uh, the sacraments. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, this is one of the reasons I was convinced of Reformed theology. I was in a tradition that had a, um, a disunity between the sacraments, okay? They had a merely memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Not, it's not a means of grace. Nothing is happening in the Lord's Supper besides we're simply, it's a funeral service. We're remembering what Christ did for us dying on the cross. That's it. Uh, and it's a good reminder, but that's it. Um, but when it came to baptism... They did not distinguish between the sign and the thing signified. So they said baptism is when you receive uh, forgiveness of your sins. It is the washing of regeneration. And they did not distinguish between uh, what baptism pointed to and what uh, the language of, the ba- of baptism and the scriptures. So they had a disunity between their sacraments and the Reformed faith. We don't. We see baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs and seals. And we know that water itself is not what washes away our sins, but it is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sins. It is the Holy Spirit which indwells us. That, um, so, and then the same thing can be said for the Lord's Supper. It is not truly the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, but it points us to, as a sign, 
the body and blood of Christ. And when we partake of it in faith, it is an assurance to us, a seal of the true and finished and complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Our union with Christ is what makes the meal meaningful. In our weakness, God gives us this visible sign so that we may know He's provided for us in His Son. And if you think of the words we heard this morning, remember and believe that His body was broken for you for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Remember and believe that, that His blood was poured out for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. So, uh, question 79, then why then does Christ call the bread His body? And we are instructed uh, that this is to teach us that just as these things nourish our temple life, so is crucified and poured out blood and nourish our souls for eternal life. Um, but this visible sign and pledge uh, is more important to us. It assures us through the Holy Spirit's work that we are one with Christ. And because we are one with Christ, it is as if his suffering and obedience is ours. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God. Now question 80, the much debated question 80, um, wasn't input, input, uh, put into the catechism until the third edition. I think this was largely because uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church had not had the Council of Trent, which spoke against Reformation doctrine and position of the Lord's Supper. Um, and I'm going to just mention it uh, quickly as a point of historical value and as a reminder to us of why we believe what we believe. Question 80 says, how does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? I think it will be helpful for us, though, if we know that the Reformed faith does not have a vendetta against individual Catholics. The Reformed faith has something against the Roman Catholic Church as an institution and what it teaches uh, and what it continues to teach, which is harmful to those who are in the Catholic Church, harmful to their faith, harmful to their, um, uh, to their assurance, for sure. This is what the, uh, the Catechism tells us. The Lord's Supper declares to us our sins have been completely forgiven. And... It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who is, uh, his very body is now in heaven at the right hand, and that's where he wants us to worship him. So there's complete forgiveness of sins, and that we are to worship Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless he's continually offered to them daily by the priests in the body and the blood. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of the bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. The harshness is obvious, but the truth remains there. The Reformed view of the Lord's Supper differs greatly from the Mass of the Roman Catholic Church in two main ways. One, uh, it's an incomplete... um, sacrifice. Incomplete and insufficient, you could say. Sacrifice. Uh, Number two is this, and it leads to improper worship, or what the catechism calls idolatry. Uh, 
And, I, and it's very simple to, to see this. Basically, we are told and we are to, called to believe in the Reformed faith that when Christ died upon the cross and said it is finished, that he completed all of our salvation, that no work was needed any longer, and that all we need to do is believe in that complete and sufficient work. But the Roman Catholic Mass says you have to continually come to the Mass over and over again if you wish to continue to receive the forgiveness of your sins and reach eternal life. Imagine for yourself once if you uh, realized, oh, I missed church this week. That means my sins weren't forgiven. It's a difficult and a very harsh and heavy way to live the Christian life, to think that the reason I need to come to church is so that I can partake in the Lord's Supper. Because if I do not partake in the Lord's Supper, my sins will not be forgiven. That is the, the, that's the reality for informed uh, Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics who don't have a, a simple and true faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and then the second is, if you go into a Catholic church, you are supposed to venerate the altar where the body and the blood of Jesus Christ is present. Because if Christ is present bodily in the bread and in the cup, then it's rightful to worship him. Because that's where he is. But because we believe the, te- the scriptures teach that he is not bodily present in the bread and the wine, but is actually bodily present at the right hand of God the Father, then to worship the elements of the Lord's Supper is idolatry. It's to worship something as God which is not God. There's no way around that reality. Therefore, we speak against that. The Lord's Supper uh, is meant to point us to the perfect work of Christ as already completed. The Mass is Christ's sacrifice being represented over and over again as repeated and needed for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper is meant to point us to Christ, our perfect Savior. The Roman Catholic view of the Supper redirects that worship to the elements themselves. Instead of worshiping Christ, they worship bread and wine, which is not Christ. So that is question 80. Let's look at the last point. Who can take it? And we'll, we'll do this quickly. I know this is a lot, but I want us to see this. Um, at one point, this question would not have been controversial at all. The historic reform position is that those who have professed faith in Christ, made profession before the elders, are those who can partake of the Lord's Supper. But uh, recently there has been a controversy or a discussion in Reformed uh, circles about something called pedo communion or infant communion or child communion. And the, question, the, the suggestion is this. If our children are part of the covenant and they're baptized, then why can they not partake of the Lord's Supper, which is for the Lord's people? Um, and that's... People have gone all different ways on, on, on their views on this and their convictions on this. And this is the way I want to put it. Who are to come to the Lord's table? The answer here uh, presupposes somebody who has true faith. And if you remember earlier, it said those with a believing heart, um, true faith, Only those who have true faith are those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. But who nevertheless trust their sins 
are pardoned, that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. So those who have true faith um, hate their sin, right? Desire to grow. Now, I'll tell you where I think we get it wrong. I think we get it wrong when we place a, um, an age like 18. That's when our kids can make profession of faith, and that's when they can partake of the Lord's Supper. We'll just say 18. I think that's where the Reformed community misses the boat, you know, gets a little bit too specific. Um, I think... Uh, it varies from situation to situation, circumstance to circumstance, child to child. But you know, when I was preparing for this message, I thought to myself, I would want to, to tell any of, of the young people who are in this uh, church service this evening that if they are sitting there at the Lord's Supper service and they see that their parents are, are partaking of the Lord's Supper and they think to themselves, why can't, uh, why am I not doing that? Why can't I do that? You know what, parents? Encourage your children. Ask, answer questions about that. What it means to be a believer, to one, one who's professed their faith. And you know what? 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, if you desire to make profession of faith to the elders, there's nothing keeping you from, from doing that, from saying to your parents, I would like to make profession of faith. I would like to tell the elders that I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And we understand that an 11-year-old's not going to make profession of faith. A 12-year-old, 13-year-old's not going to make profession of faith, maybe like an 18, 20, 30-year-old or whatever it may be. But we know that God saves children. And I think sometimes we make too hard of a line on an age where now we can say, now make profession of faith. Now you're knowledgeable enough. Now you can communicate enough. Uh, then you can come to the Lord's table. I think we make too hard of a, a line, a divide on that. So, but what we're told here is that those who have true faith, those who hate their sin and desire to grow, are those who should come to the Lord's Supper, not hypocrites or the unrepentant. Now, um, if you've ever heard the saying, uh, yeah, there's hypocrites at church. We're all hypocrites. Why don't you come along? Then maybe uh, this is a really kind of concerning word here. Uh, we're all hypocrites, aren't we? Because we don't live up perfectly to our faith. What the hypocrites that are being spoken of here are, uh, are not those that fall short of their calling, since we would all be in that category, but they're those who claim to be Christians, but their lack of remorse over their sinful lives prove otherwise. They're like talkative from Pilgrim's Progress. They know the, the, the walk, the talk, but they can't, uh, they don't live up to it, Right? And, and uh, they're not allowed to, hypocrites and unrepentant, and unrepentant would be those who are blatantly in a sinful way of life, but uh, try to defend their sinful way of living, or, um, you know, have no remorse or have no concern for the way that they're living uh, as being offensive to God. They would eat, drink, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And the final question here is, are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they say and do that they're unbelieving and ungodly? And we're told, no, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's anger upon the entire congregation. As 1 Corinthians 11 instructs us, those, some, some had even died, some were sick because of the way that they were treating the Lord's Supper. 
Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, uh, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. The reason for fencing the table is not to create an unhealthy environment of sinful introspection. Oh, I don't know if I've, uh, I think I've sinned too much this week to come to the Lord's Supper. I was keeping tally marks. Uh, or to make two different categories of believers, those we believe are righteous enough to take the Lord's Supper and those we believe are not righteous enough to take the Lord's Supper. You know, we have done things like that in the past. Elders handed out coins saying, hey, you know, you, you can come to the Lord's Supper this week. Things like that. So I don't think that's the idea. The idea actually is to protect unrepentant sinners and the congregation from incurring the wrath of God. That's a loving thing. Um, And this is not a call to those with weak consciences or those who feel overwhelmed with guilt because of their sin. The supper is for them. It's for those who willfully reject the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives and feel no remorse over it. Those who seek to justify their sinful lifestyles. Therefore, this church, since we understand that every time we present the Lord's Supper that there might be someone like this in attendance, there's a warning to abstain or to, to, to not partake. This warning has a function of grace as well, to call these people to faith in Christ or to make things right with those whom they are holding something against, to call them back to the place where grace can be found. Christ in the cross, right? Fencing the table is, a, is an act of, of God's grace as well. Reminder that what Christ has done for us uh, is weighty and meaningful. I want to close with a poem by William Cowper entitled Welcome to the Table, where he shows us that the supper is for sinners. It's not for those who see themselves as righteous. It's not for uh, the pompous and those who believe they're good enough. This is what he says. This is the feast of heavenly wine, and God invites to sup. The juices of the living vine were pressed to fill the cup. O bless the Savior, ye that eat with royal dainties fed. Not heaven affords a costlier treat, for Jesus is the bread. The vile, the lost, he calls to them. Ye trembling souls appear. The righteous in their own esteem have no acceptance here. Approach, ye poor, nor dare refuse the banquet spread for you. Dear Savior, this is welcome news. Then I may venture too. If guilt and sin afford a plea and may obtain a place, surely the Lord will welcome me and I shall see his face. People of God, The Lord's Supper is for our weaknesses, to remind us of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We are told that the Lord's Supper nourishes and assures those who have faith by reminding them of the perfect work of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words, and we thank you that you can instruct us, that you've given us a visible sign and assurance that your son Jesus Christ died for the complete forgiveness of our sins and even now lives and is present with you at your right hand. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we go up into the heavens and we sup with him. We long, Lord, for the day when 
your son will return and we shall see him face to face. It's in his name we pray. Amen.